Hey there, I'm Andrew Ainsworth, a proud supporter of Sword and Laser, thanks to Patreon.com. It's easy to set up, and what do you get out of it? Endless geeky bantering about the latest sci-fi and fantasy books. So if you want to help out, head over to Patreon.com slash Sword and Laser. Give a little, and get a lot of Veronica mispronouncing things. It is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, awesome discussions from fans just like you. Tom, and, you're yes. interrupting me. No, I, I wasn't trying to interrupt. I was complimenting, <laughs> you know? You know how on radio, on morning radio, they do the Bob and Dave, 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 Dave. Thought maybe we could use a little, <laughs> no? Is that not working? I don't know if it worked. In the but- morning, morning, morning. Did you traffic, know, traffic on the ones, ones, ones. I don't know if our listeners know my my radio history. Ah, we do both you, have radio history. We both do. Um, a little aside here. I was an intern at Radio 104 in Hartford, Connecticut back in 1996, 97. Mm. And uh, my I was an intern for the D. Snyder morning show, which was very exciting. Because What did D. you want to do? I wanted to be on the radio, but I no, wanted I, to... No, you wanted to rock. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I want to rock. I know. I Mostly, I just made him cappuccinos. Oh, he'd like a good cappuccino, that D. Snyder. Yeah, but if, if you gamers out there are familiar with the work of um, Larry Herb, also known as Major Nelson, on the Microsoft side of things, he was the studio manager, the station manager of Radio 104 while I was there. I don't think I knew that. Really? Oh, that's that's crazy. Isn't that funny? So we worked in the same building at the same time, but he was the big, big, big bad boss. Yeah, yeah. And I was an itty bitty little bitty intern. <laughs> I gosh, I was like fourteen, um, and that was oh my, my first internship. Uh, my first job in nineteen eighty six at sixteen years old was a DJ for WGEL, the best country in the country during the day, and from eight to midnight, the Rock Zone. The Rock Zone. Wow, it switched over formats? Yeah, it switched from country to heavy metal at 8 Impressive. o'clock every Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the 104 switched and over to techno at like And my boss was John like Kennedy. 11. Not the John Kennedy. Well, it was the John Kennedy a, to me because he signed John my checks. Kennedy. There you go. He, was, he wasn't the president because he, he was, was alive. He was to you, John Kennedy. Right. His That's middle initial wasn't F either. I want to rock! <laughs> Um, but anyway, let's hop right into the quick burns. So Louie uh, pointed out that you can watch the first episode of The Expanse TV show right now. Uh, you can get it on sci-fi.com, S-Y-F-Y.com. There's a free version you can download on iTunes. It's, it's all over the place, but if you go to sci-fi.com, you can find all the ways to watch it. I watched it and I loved it. Oh. I can't not love it, though. Because I, I love these characters so much, and they didn't ruin the characters. Holden started a little different than I remembered, but then this is also before all of the things that happened to Holden really make him a Holden, and you start to see that Holden that you get to know come out by the end of the episode. Uh, so that's good. Miller is fantastic. Uh, and, and my only quibble with him had been that he seemed a little skinny until Ty uh, Frank a.k.a. James S.A. Corey on Twitter, uh, pointed out, like, he's a belter. I'm like, oh, right. Of course. Of course. He is a belter. Of course he's um, skinny. And he's a, he's amazing. 
uh, Miller steals the show in the first episode. It's it's a little closely shot, but then that makes sense because they're in very tight quarters in all of these well, things. That's something so. we kind of discussed when we first saw the initial trailers because we said it felt like that very early um, Battlestar Galactica feel where there wasn't, you know, honestly, in, in the very beginning, there wasn't a ton of budget. And so they were shooting a lot of things yeah. in a very tight space on a studio set. And it wasn't until later within the series that they started to really expand outside of the of the ship quarters feeling to it. Um, so I think that's probably a little bit what might be going on here. But yes, also a lot of it takes place in, in the very tight quarters of space, uh, in, in stations and in ships. And, and that's always going to be a little more tightly packed. I am very excited for the next episode. I haven't seen it yet. I've been... it's literally been open in a tab of mine for the past couple days <laughs> and i just have not gotten around to watching it I, it's on my to-do list i'm ashamed um, monday morning i just started watching it in snippets yeah like i would watch it and then i'd have to go do something and then i'd watch it which probably isn't the best way to enjoy it but i couldn't stop myself i just wanted to keep going well, Joanna says, on a different note, it's World Builders time again. Yay. And all kinds of creative and geeky activity and prizes are caught up in that. It's a big fundraiser for Heifer International uh, run by Patrick Rothfuss. Well, Heifer International is not run by Patrick Rothfuss, but Correct. his World Builders charity works with Heifer International. Actually, he does raise all the goats. <laughs> personally that's why we haven't birth. got the third book yet he just but catches it's for all a good those cause. baby goats right in yeah. his bare hands <laughs> um i am i am a proud winner of a previous world builders auction i have the um the tree of life from the uh from uh, Kevin Hearn's novels, The Iron Druid Chronicles. I have a, a, a drawing of that that's hanging on my wall, signed by him and the artist from last year's World Builders. And there's already a lot of really great stuff up on the eBay site for World Builders, including guest appearance in Marie Brennan's Memoirs of Lady Trent series. That's already had 29 bids. It's at $102 right now. You can get the Fool's Assassin and Fool's Quest first UK edition signed by Robin Hobb. That's at $155. There's an arc of Brian McClellan's Promise of Blood signed by the author. There's stuff from Tobias Buckle. There's stuff from Cat Rambo. There's stuff from Richard Cadry, uh, Brad Bolo. Uh, there's just every author we've probably ever spoken to on the show basically has a charity piece up on this auction. And you don't have to do an auction. If, if you're sitting there saying, well, I'd love to help, but I can't really do an auction, you can just donate. Uh, for every $10 you donate, your name goes into a hat, uh, which Patrick points out is a very big hat. And you have a chance to win thousands of prizes, including signed or rare books, games, collectibles, other stuff donated. And in fact, if you buy a goat for someone, that's $120. You get 12 entries into the lottery. This is pretty cool, too. Yeah. Signed first edition of Anne Leckie's Imperial Radic. Is that what you say it? Ratched. Ratched. Ratched series uh, with themed tea. So you get oh, all three cool. books plus some tea based on her world. <laughs> it's awesome. That's fantastic. So go check it out, folks. Yeah, there's some really great stuff, and it's for a really awesome cause. Uh, we have the link in the show note, or just search World Builders Fundraiser. Uh, the Nebula Awards are up for nomination. Uh, you can, if you're a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, now present your nominations through February 15th, 2016. And the Science Fiction Writers Association, I'm sorry, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America has a suggested reading list 
for you to look at as well. So big thanks to Stephen for pointing us out the Reader's Guide, and thanks to mm-hmm. Sandra for pointing out the nominations. And this is also the first time they've publicly published this list. So this is kind of a big step for them. Um, so it's pretty cool. You get to see all the books that are on the suggested reading list for voters. Uh, there's, of course, tons of great stuff uh, that we've talked about on the show, including Uprooted by Naomi Novik. Um, there's stuff by Elizabeth Baer, um, Max Gladstone, N.K. Jemison. Pretty much every author that you love is on now this they, list at this point. They- they point out that this is not a ballot or nomination Mm-mm. tally. You'll see a number. For instance, Uprooted has the most with 20. That just means 20 members have put that on the, on the list. I've suggested it, yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean it'll win. It doesn't mean anything. It's just it a really suggested reading list. But I think you can probably safely it means say... 20, 20 people didn't check the list before they suggested it. <laughs> yes, that a lot of these will probably end up on the nomination ballots at the end of the year. Yeah, um, these ones up at the top. Pretty, yeah. pretty safe bet that you'll see some of these showing up. And uh, it's just a great place to go look for new things to read. Yeah, I think I'll definitely probably be picking the next fantasy pick um, after this month. I've got my pick uh, that we'll talk about later in the show. Then you've got a sci-fi pick coming up. And then afterwards, maybe I'll look to this list for our next suggestion. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, By the way, that reminds us that the Goodreads Choice Awards are underway. The final round closed, and the winners will be announced on November 30th. So nervous. So... Will it be Anne Leckie, Ancillary Mercy, Peter Klein's The Fold, Welcome to Night Vale, Armada, Seven Eves, The End of All Things, John Scalzi, Golden Sun, Aftermath, The Water Knife, or The Heart <laughs> or Goes be, Last. Or for, uh, you know, the, I mean, for fantasy, we've got Jim Butcher, we've got Neil Gaiman, we've got Robin Hobb, we've got Alona Andrews, N.K. Jemison, Patricia Briggs. I really felt this time that it was a, I don't feel like I can safely vote anymore, Tom. I feel like... Oh, because your vote's public. Yeah. Because your votes are public, and we've gotten to this very strange point where we're pals with a lot of these authors. I know this is a very, like, first world problem right here. I totally recognize that, (laughs) listeners. Oh, I'm so much friendly with all these famous authors. I'm Veronica Belmont. My name is Veronica. That's exactly how it's No, but I know what you mean. Like, we interviewed Robin Hobb. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, I should pick Robin Hobb. Fool's Quest is great. And then it's like, oh, but we also interviewed N.K. Jemison, and she was really cool. And Oh, Jim Butcher was so great when we had him on the oh, show at Dragon so Con. And yeah. Brandon Sanderson was so nice to give us his time for the video show. And oh, my God, Alona Andrews, that series, that Kate Daniels series is one of my favorite urban fantasy series of all oh, time. Oh, Neil Gaiman won't return our email. No, uh, that's kidding. true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> for all of them but one. I'm kidding. I um, know Game is so yeah, too amazing. It's, it's, to it's, it's tough. I did I did vote for Felicia Day um, for like whatever series she was on. <laughs> for whatever. Whatever, mem- whatever. Memoir and autobiography. Baloney category she was in. For, no, for, for, for uh, Mystery fantastic. Science Theater person. I know. I can't awesome. believe she's going to be mad. Oh, so good. She's going to be the mad scientist. So well, good. The, the granddaughter of the mad scientist? Daughter. Da- daughter. Okay. Yeah. Daughter. Uh, shall we proceed to the good news from Sandra that Orbit Books announced that they are expanding their science fiction and fantasy line by 50% next year to publish 90 books Ooh. in 2016. I think that means they've already got books in the hopper, but I immediately looked at this and was like, oh, good news for authors. More places buying their books. 
Yeah, and I mean, they are already, as io9 points out, uh, doing pretty well because they do have the rights to the Expanse novels, uh, which is pretty great. You know, Anne Leckie's series was on Orbit, Kim Stanley Robinson, Daniel Abraham, Gail Carriger, Brian McClellan, and Kate Jemison. Um, gosh, yeah, they've been they've been having a good time. So I think this is good, uh, good, good news for readers as, yeah, as well sure. as authors. More books. More books. Thanks, Orbit. It's the remember a couple of years ago in Sword and Laser, people were like, "Why is science fiction in a rut? Why won't anybody you know publish science fiction we books?" And we you. were like, "It's a pendulum. It'll swing back." We told it's to swing you. Back. We told to you guys. Anyway. Um, interesting article that was shared to us by a couple of different sources. I saw it on Twitter from usually Matt. Tom saw it just through his daily meanderings on the interwebs. Um, but there's an article over on the next web about uh, nine sci-fi authors went to Microsoft's research lab. Re- research lab. Have another drink, Veronica. <laughs> research labs and wrote a book. Tom, tell me about this story. Uh, yeah, they, they basically took them into their, their fancy area, which I've been in. By the way, it's very nice. Mm -hmm. Got some very cool things. I can't tell you anything about it. Uh, And said, talk to our folks, look at our demos, and write us a story about a future that is inspired by what you're seeing around here. And you may think, oh, so it's going to be like wearing my amazing Microsoft thing. I don't think it's like that. I mean, the (laughs) writers here are David Brin. Nancy Kress, Elizabeth Bear, Anne Leckie, uh, Shannon McGuire, Jack McDevitt, Robert J. Sawyer. Uh, these these folks are high-level authors. Greg Bear is in there as well. So so they just wanted to have these folks let their imaginations run wild in the same direction they're going. Mm-hmm. I think partly to popularize technology and and uh, you know get some association with Microsoft towards that, but also probably to help them imagine. What could our technology be used for? Well, that's that's a you know pretty interesting because we have an interview coming up next week with uh, Charles E. Gannon, um, in which he kind of discusses some of his work with the government with Sigma. Um, about their work looking at future technologies and how that all fits in, and I feel like this is almost going. It it seems like a very sympathetic relationship between yeah, science it's a fiction authors thing, and sure. technologists because both are looking to each other for ideas and content. And, and remember, NASA did a similar thing yeah. a while back. So I think, yeah, I think there's a symbiotic relationship there with actual researchers wanting to tap into that imagination of science fiction and fantasy writers to kind of help them, I don't know, it's not so much imagine what's possible, but kind of. Kind of. You know, to see like, oh, I hadn't thought of taking things in that direction. And I know, because I'm a scientist... That that's actually a very probable way, and and your your sci-fi way of explaining it might not work, but I know this other way that might mm-hmm. make the same kind of thing work, or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I meant to say I meant to say symbiotic relationship. I said sympathetic, but I think it works both ways. I think that yeah, either <laughs> one works absolutely. And finally, today a bit of inside baseball news. Um, we are really really super excited to announce that an unattractive vampire uh, by Jim McDonnell. I'm sorry, Jim. I'm saying your name wrong, probably. Jim McDonnell. D-O-N-I-E-L. Uh, Doniel? I'll have to talk to you on the phone and figure he this out. He is now 
on, among the many honored authors. The many. Yes, he is one of our three honored authors. Oh, I meant the, people that you've mispronounced their name. Of people, the large list of people who I mispronounced their name, and the very small list of people who are on the Sword and Laser Ink Shares <laughs> collection. Uh, how's, how's that? Uh, Good. Uh, yeah, joining Life Engineered and Asteroid Made of Dragons. So we now have three in the collection, and there will be more. Yes, there will be. Um, we're really excited to have him, and hopefully you guys will head over to Inkshares and pre-order the book because it is in that phase right now, and I think it's going to be a hit. I'm, and, really, uh, I'm really stoked on it. Patrons, keep an eye on your Patreon emails, and mm. uh, Goodreads members, keep an eye on your Goodreads posts because there's more Inkshares news a-coming. Indeed there is. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Reach over to your AM radio and tune it in. Uh, turn into Diamond City Radio. <laughs> you have been playing Fallout. Yeah, pretty much. All right, well, now it is time for Bear Your Sword, which is our feedback from the audience. Hey, uh, we got some whiskey nerdism. Although, where did this come from? I, I must have chopped off the, uh, the name of the person. Okay, you read it and I'll look for the name. Okay. Uh, first, both Tom and Veronica are drinking whiskey. Scotch, bourbon, Japanese, Irish, Canadian, they're all whiskey. It's like how all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Each subdivision of whiskey has its own rules. Scotch, for instance, can only be made in Scotland. Mm -hmm. You can make something you exactly like it somewhere else, but you can't call it scotch. And even within scotch, there are subdivisions like single mart versus blended versus single grain, etc. The one thing I want to know is, is that the law or the convention? Because with with no with champagne, there's a law that says right, you cannot right. call it champagne unless it's made in champagne. That's a good and question. I'm oversimplifying it when I say made in champagne. There's rules around it, um, so I'm still wondering that. Anyway, as for Japanese whiskey, uh, let's not get into whiskey with an e versus whiskey without an e right That's now. That's okay. I thought that was a Canada. I thought that was a Canada United States differentiation, but I guess well, it might be a British not spelling. British, yeah, UK yeah. versus colonies, whatever. Tom is drinking whiskey from Japan's first whiskey distillery, pioneered by a guy named Masataka Takitsuru, who loved scotch, studied distilling in Scotland, and in 1920 fell in love and married a Scottish woman named Rita Cohen. He returned to Japan to set up whiskey distilling at what would become Suntory, and Suntory. met with <laughs> for a relaxing time. Make it Suntory time. And met with very little success because Japanese drinkers did not like the burly taste of single malt. They preferred the tamer flavor of blended scotch that Taketsuru so adored. Ten years later, after his contract with Suntory was up, Taketsuru quit and started his own distillery with the aim of making Scottish-style whiskey again. And that's what Veronica is drinking, Nika. Mm. There was wow. recently a massively popular soap opera about Taketsuru and Cohen called Masan that aired on NHK and caused a massive spike in interest among Japanese women in becoming Whoa. whiskey drinkers, which is why, Veronica, that Nika 12-year-old you're drinking won't be available in the U.S. or Japan anymore. They're running out oh. and dropping age statements so they can use younger whiskey without the stigma of a young age printed on the label. Whoa. By law, the age in the bottle reflects the youngest whiskey used so you, if you make a brand by mixing 50% 40-year-old single malt and 50% 4-year-old single malt, you just made a 4-year-old whiskey out of it. Wow. That's so much good information. That's from Keith Allison. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Wow. So we were kind of drinking competitive whiskeys then, I guess, in a sense. Or historical uh, Historically related. Yeah. Whiskeys. Yeah. 
That was super interesting. Thank you. I love stuff like that. That was apologies really cool. to anyone who's like, I came here for science fiction and fantasy. Don't care about whiskey, but I just found that really fascinating. Me too. I, I wanted to include it because he clearly put a lot of work into that email and I found it absolutely fascinating. So thank, thank you. you. Keith. Thank you, Keith. Cheers. Uh, Matt, Matt, what, 1982? <laughs> what it's M A T T H. Ask for a little help on where to start reading the Shannara books. Uh, people, say, uh, go to the author's wiki page to check which book, or I'm sorry, I went to the author's wiki page to check which book is first, and this made everything more confusing. The Sword of Shannara is book number one, but then First King of Shannara is book number zero and a prequel to The Sword. Then the Warden Void series precedes the action in Genesis of Shannara trilogy and serves as the very start of the Shannara saga. Has anyone read all 25 books currently in the saga? And if so, can anyone tell me what order I need to read the books in to get the whole story and have it all make sense? I'm just going to send a tweet to Terry Brooks. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You're doing that right right now? Right now. Yeah. Like, hey, can you tell Matt 1982... What order to read them in? Well, uh, Michelle said, I haven't read them all. Maybe the first six way back in the day, but I always go with the order of publication. Uh, And then uh, Joel pointed out that Terry Brooks' page on Goodreads has a suggested order from Terry uh, for revisiting readers. And so you could go either way. You could either read an order of publication like Michelle suggests because that's the way they were written, or you could go with this revisiting order. All right. Well, I'm sending out a tweet right now. I'm saying, uh, hi there. We have a question from a reader. Where to start on Shannara? Then I link to the thing. Hopefully he will write back to me. And he'll say, with the new TV series coming out soon. Hopefully that was the right Twitter account. I'm going to click on that just to make sure. It is. Okay. And he follows us, so who knows? Who knows? Anyway, so there you go. You got three possible answers. One is publication order. The other is uh, Terry's suggested reading order on Goodreads. And the third is whatever he responds with on Twitter. (laughs) I like option number three. At least it'll be a little uh, interactive. Yeah. Well, hey, let's get into the book of the month discussion. Um, We are going to be wrapping up Time and Again by Jack Finney. uh, But first, we're going to do a kickoff of next month's book pick, Arrows of the Queen by Mercedes Lackey. So if you haven't finished Time and Again yet and want to hold off on this podcast listening until you've gotten to that point, feel free to listen to our kickoff and then, you know, stop the show. Well, you're... You're overpromising. We don't have much of a kickoff, frankly. It's just we're just going to basically say we are reading Heroes of the Queen. You've kind of done the kickoff at this point. There you go. (laughs) That's next book. Uh, I I did send out a bunch of notes about Mercedes Lackey and Arrows of the Queen to the patrons uh, Mm -hmm. who are at the $5 an episode level or more. Uh, So look for that if you didn't see that in your email. And next episode that we do, uh, we'll go through a a fuller look at the book. Uh, But man... Mercedes Lackey has published more than 140 books. She writes books. at an average rate of five and a half books per year. It was hard for me to even pick this book. It took a long... I knew I wanted to read a Mercedes Lackey, but I had to figure out which one would be the most suitable. Um, and so this is the one I landed on. And it seems so far that in our pre-read thread, um, a lot of people are pretty stoked about it or have read it as teenagers and are looking forward to really getting back into it. Some people just read her books because they had pretty horses on the cover. Yeah. Which so, is good enough reason, yeah. to be honest. Uh, but yeah, this is going back to 1987. Uh, it was her first published book, her first published novel, I believe, at least in this Valdemar universe anyway. Uh, and, uh, and, and it is a, a, an iconic book 
in the pantheon of fantasy. Now, some people are going to not like this book because it's not what they want. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that was very popular with people who in, the, in their teen years. Uh, and you may not be into that anymore. And that's fine. There's no judgment there. It doesn't mean it's a bad book, though. Um, so just as a, a quick aside, uh, we have a response back from Sean Speakman, who is the webmaster uh, for Terry Brooks. Wow, that was fast. <laughs> and he says, for new readers, the published order is the best order. It's the least amount of spoilers. And he there puts you a go. link to Terry Brooks's website um, with the published reading order. Um, so we will post that over on the Goodreads threads. But thanks a lot to, um, to Sean for getting back to us so quickly. That was awesome. All right, now we are going to wrap up time and again. So if you haven't read it or if you don't want to be spoiled, uh, jump out now. Okay. Are they gone? Are they gone? Did they go back in time? Maybe they did. Maybe they hypnotized themselves. So, all right, so I finished the book and um, I, I continue to really enjoy it. And I know we talked a little bit about how it didn't feel very science fiction-y and, and some of our readers had a bit of a, an issue with that. They felt that the science of the time travel was kind of baloney. And granted, it was pretty baloney. But at the same time, I there was so much more to like about this book outside of the traditional sci-fi tropes um, that I, I'm really happy we read it. I'm, I, I wouldn't have found it otherwise I don't think if we hadn't selected it for this book club same here yeah and so for me that's that's a win is when I find something that I really enjoy even if it doesn't fit into our typical kind of you know choices or our silos of sci-fi and fantasy that I think people come to attribute with sword and laser yeah I I agree uh I had to set aside my initial disappointment with the mechanism of time travel, because that is a part of a time travel story that I really enjoy is, is dealing with, you know, how do they get around the physics? But let's be honest, most of the time, it's something that's a cheat at the bottom. Even if you get all quantum mechanical with it at some point, because we don't actually know how to travel (laughs) in time, you have to make it up. I mean, we know, we think it might be possible, although some physicists think it's probably impossible. So any time travel story is already going to be suspect. The fact that he just went like, physics, 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 now self-hypnotize yourself, (laughs) is just kind of a macro version of what most time travel stories do. So once I got past that, then it became like a really fascinating look at the past, which is the other thing I love about time travel stories. How do people deal with the other era and not only was a fa- was it a fascinating look at New York in 1882 for us as time travelers uh, of a sort. It was a fascinating look at New York of 1970, and then we got to see Julia come and see the New York of 1970. Oh, wasn't and that be, wonderful? Be dazzled. I think that might have been my favorite part of the book. I think so too. I mean, the second they started doing that, I, I mean, it, it was really amazing, and I think a lot of people commented on this as well about how the first two thirds of the book went pretty slowly for a lot of people. There was a lot just of, like things did in the 1880s, mm, mind you. Yes, there was a lot of development of characters. There was a lot of description of scenery and clothing and and the state of New York and and how everything looked at the time and felt at the time which I found to be very rich and entertaining in and of itself. Um, But then we get to the fire at the world building and we get to the, the essentially the, the chase scenes and the flight from the awful, awful cop and who wants to give them the third degree. And then we get to finally their amazing escape 
uh, to the modern era of the 1970s and Julia's experience of, of being in a different time herself and, and really actually, you know, being a lot more comfortable with it than I think I would have suspected. Um, but you know, women, we're just better with that kind of thing. We adapt so much better. That's a sexist statement. I'm not surprised. Um, but I, I, I just, I really loved it. And then finally the ending, which I thought was so perfect and so fitting. And I didn't see that at all. And it was, even though I guess I should have expected it, it was such an utter surprise up until the very last where throughout the whole book, I'm like, ah, is he ever going to get back to seeing the meeting of, of the doctor's parents? Like, is he ever, I gonna- had actually forgotten about it until I, I heard the about the apple lady and I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah. I, I forgot he was supposed to be on the lookout for that. And at that point I was just like, wow, like this is the, they, he really, he brought this full circle in such a great way and it makes sense. And I, and there were some there were some problematic things though, and I think a lot of our readers picked up on that. But in particular, I really loved this thread by E. J. Xavier over on the forums, and it's about the difference of the 1880s via the 1970s and kind of the perspective that Jack Finney was bringing to this time difference. And it's a very long post, but I did want to read some of it because I think it's it's important and it was very well researched. And EJ says, so yes, I too thought the romanticization of the 1880s was frankly very hard to swallow, as was the general disillusionment with modern life. But then again, 1970 in general, and 1970s New York City in particular, was a time period rife with disillusionment, frustration, and nihilism. nihilism. Uh, The social gains of the 60s were not won and done, they just barely begun, and the battles were still vicious and painful. The Vietnam War had not yet ended. Saigon would not fall for another five years. At this point, the war is already 15 years long. Roe v. Wade was still three years away. The passage of the Civil Rights Act was recent. It was as recent as Obamacare is to us right now, and the region fighting over it was far larger. Boston was in the middle of a racially charged series of lawsuits over desegregating schools starting in 1965. Uh, This slow burn will result in riots in 1975. Cities and urban centers were experiencing the beginnings of urban blight and white flight. Um, In addition to the racial tensions felt all over the country, in NYC, specifically, uh, you have the 1968 sanitation strike, the 1966 transit strike, and he goes on to really show, like, yeah, I mean, we think of New York as being a pretty stable place today. Um, <laughs> I think this is a generational speaking, thing. Do you? Uh, and and I was born in 1970, so I'm not I'm not pretending to remember what things were like, but I still think of New York as a dangerous place that's falling apart. Really? Yeah. It's, and then it's I have to remind really myself that, so much. That, that it's not. And when I go there, I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a part of me that just grew up with like, oh, right, New York is full of sirens and people with knives that stab you on the subway. And then I have to remember that it's changed. And I'm always amazed every time I go, I'm like, oh, right, you know, New York is this fabulous place now. That's an amazing transformation. Yeah. So this, this all of the, the reactions, and, and I... I doubt that they're all generational but all the all the the reactions to uh jack finney being way too hopeless about new york i'm like what are you talking about like no that's that's actually the appropriate reaction well, yeah, to well, new york. EJ, ej goes on to say there was a decided sense of pessimism in the 1970s yeah. and i think finney is catching on to the beginnings of a craving for optimism uh, which seems to be the attribute of the people in the 1880s that most impresses him as I have, well as the I, beginnings I, of a desire to preserve the past i i just i get I got 
very frustrated with people who thought Finney was being too nice about the 1880s and too mean about New York in the 70s. Well, uh, I, I feel like that, I feel like in the 1880s, he's looking at it through the eyes of a freaking time traveler, people. Of course, he's got <laughs> rose colored glasses on. He just traveled through freaking time. We have a great scene where he talks to the cabbie, or I guess mm-hmm. it's not the cabbie, the bus driver, uh, where the bus driver points out, like, yeah, this is yeah, this cold. is not a this is not I, a good life. <laughs> I'm literally dying here. Yeah. Like I don't yeah, have exactly. any money, any so time I, to spend like, with my family, and I'm freezing to death. He's not being an apologist. He's not saying, oh, the 1880s were perfect. Although the character does say that sometimes, right? He's I think he's creating a genuine response from someone. And we and we also forget that when we live in an age, we always feel like our age is the worst. That is oh, a yeah. that is a very common feel. And I, yes, there are two of you out there going, I don't feel that way. I think our age is the best, and you're awesome. But most people always feel things used to be better, and that's just what Finney is doing with this character. A character is like, ah, today with the buildings and the soullessness, and oh, wouldn't wouldn't it have been great to live back there? I tell you what, and I know there's a sequel, and it probably doesn't go this way, but you really put Cy back in the 1880s for a few more months, and he's going to be missing hamburgers. He's no, going to be got, missing he's television. He's got polio. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like... <laughs> right. So, so I get what you're talking about, but I didn't feel like this book overlooked that. I think this book just portrayed a really interesting and probably true-to-life reaction of someone who actually lived in 1970. And I definitely don't feel the portrayal of 1970s New York was unfair. Uh, if anything, it was dead center in the middle. There were people who were much more pessimistic about things than Cy was. Yeah, um, I, I would like to see that sequel book, actually. I think that well, would the, be he, a he wrote fun... a sequel that is out there. Is there? Yeah. Uh, I should know that. Uh, it was it was published in the '90s, I guess. I'd have to uh, have to go back to our That's notes okay. here. Um, um, I wanted to to also uh, read some quotes from other people in our "What did you think?" thread about time and again. Uh, Joanna said, uh, I found it kind of sleepy until I hit somewhere around 60% and the Pickering plot picks up. For most of the book, I was wondering if the author forgot about the uh, the fact that Danziger had asked Cy to see his parents meeting, but then it got addressed at the very end. And yeah, I, 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 I did jump ahead a little bit and mention that point already. But yeah, the Pickering plot was kind of, what a villain. I mean, yeah. even Cy in the book says he's like the villain in the classic sense of a villain. Like it's not an ironic term for him. They actually like in that time period be like that man's a villain and i love that Sai still found himself sympathizing with him he's like oh man he had a he's having a crappy time like he's burned all over his body has to lie to be someone else for the rest of his life like which again i sucks that that's a sign of a good writer who's not just turning in a paper character like pickering he's saying wow he looks like a paper character but if you look below that there's more to this guy um, which I, again, I, I found fascinating. I'll be honest, the fire scene and the chase through the city started to bore me because really? I'm odd and I was just adoring the descriptions, which oh, I usually so don't. I usually like action. I usually don't like it when people spend a lot of time describing things, but because these were historical and fairly accurate, I was, I was just loving that. I wanted to get back to more of that. It was really messed up when the cop, what was the cop's name? yeah (laughs) we read the book we really did when he was uh, 
can't remember. It's, when, a, when it's he, like a I'll four look up letter his name. name. Do you, I'll look up his name. Go okay. ahead and finish your point. Um, like when it was, it was so funny how they like they mentioned him, and then he kind of come back. He comes back later as Thomas like this, Burns, Police Inspector Burns. Burns, Burns, um, Mr. Burns. He was super evil, but when he tells them that they're free to go, that they don't have enough evidence, and, he, and he's like, after them, they're escaping. I was like, oh, what a dick. Yeah, Oh, totally. it's such a dick move. Oh. By the way, the sequel was called From Time to Time, published in 1995. Mm. Don't you feel like Cy was a little unfair to Kate throughout this whole thing? Yes. Did you? I hoped. I did. I hoped that they were actually going to bring in Kate to go find Cy. I thought Cy was going to stick around, start like playing house with Julia, and that the <laughs> the project would send Kate back to be like, yo, what are you doing? Like, how did she really should have shown up just randomly in 1880 and been like, hey, I'm here. I know how to do this, too. Like, there you're was fooling a brief, around on me. There was a brief moment where I thought they might send Julia to be forced to marry Carmody and then become Kate's grandmother or something. <laughs> I really thought Kate was just going to show up and be like, yeah, quit stepping out on me. No, here, especially because Kate got to actually travel in time once with Cy. You figure like, oh, we're going to come back around to Kate. And then it ends up no. like, nope. No, she didn't nope. get to do anything. Cy's kind of a player. Sorry. He liked the 1880 girls. And he was, they were always kind of honest with each other. They were always like, oh, That's this, true. this relationship is kind of iffy. It was but at the, the same 60s. time, like I really would have loved it if at the end when they were saying, oh, we want you, by the way, to go back and ruin Pickering's life so that, you know, Fidel Castro never comes into power. And then when he's like, I don't want to do that. They're like, fine, we'll send Kate. She'll do it instead. Kate. <laughs> Kate's been, been hanging around a lot. We've been training Kate this whole time while you've right. been gone, by the way. So. That, that's a more modern take on the story for yeah, sure. Well, I'll do it. I'll do a rewrite, a modern feminist rewrite Fan of fiction. time and again. Yeah. Uh, Colin said, I listened to the audible version of the book and have to say that I enjoyed the experience. I instantly felt at home with the conversational storytelling style, was quite happy to be swept along wherever the story went, listening whenever I could until I finished the whole thing. That said, the story is not hard hitting, nor does it try to address big issues. The mechanics of time travel don't really bear close scrutiny. It just is what it is. A cleverly plotted mystery where the action happens to be taking place 90 years in the protagonist's past. I can see why some people could have been frustrated by the overly descriptive writing, but the richness of the text is really what sells the time travel aspect. The author must have researched it very closely, or at least he gives that impression. Uh, and I think Colin sums up my reaction to the book right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I loved the descriptions. It really made me feel like I was like I was there, like I was actually time traveling to both of those time periods. And we, we talked about that in the last episode as well. And I think that's just really the mark of a of a good storyteller. Now, Veronica, you, it sounds like you liked the book. I did. And I like the book. <laughs> yes. So we have to give Matthew his his, his viewpoint okay. for him and his kind. Uh, he says, I have to say that other than the vivid descriptions of 1882 New York, I kind of hated this book. I grew to despise the main character and in the last third of the book began to think of him as either at best a well-meaning idiot <laughs> or at worst a self-important anti-hero. After reading another thread, I see the social commentary the author is trying to get at with the architectural changes of New York and the anti-ends-justify-the-means style of government. However, in the end, I am left feeling dissatisfied. 
And I, I hate to leave it off on a on a sad note, but yeah, people did feel that way. I mean, there were yeah. a lot of complaints that this wasn't true sci-fi, and there were a lot of complaints that it just didn't dig into the science of the whole time travel aspect enough. But you know, takes takes all kinds. Everyone is entitled to an opinion. Totally, and totally. I totally respect that. And I have to say, if your complaint was that this didn't do the science well, then this just isn't your genre of book. Uh, and maybe you know you can point you can blame me for that for picking it as a laser I guess uh, or or at least putting it in the vote as a laser but that to me that's excusable like well okay then you don't like whatever kind of book this is and that's fine uh, Matthews Matthews are very much more like I didn't like the book. I, you know, it's not mm-hmm. about what kind of genre it is. I just didn't like the hero. I didn't like this and that. Uh, and that's, again, that, that goes back to what you just said. It's, it's a matter of opinion, and we all have them, just like we all have elbows. We all have elbows. Everybody's got one. Yeah. Or two, usually. I have two opinions. <laughs> Do you? Just yeah. two? That's it. I use them all up on the show. <laughs> Well, I think that about wraps up Time and Again by Jack Finney. Uh, Thank you guys for reading along with that. And yeah, we're going to be kicking off the next book, uh, a fantasy novel by Mercedes Lackey, The Arrows of the Queens. You can pick that up in your local bookstore or on Amazon, or I think it's on Audible, but it may not be available on Audible in Australia. It's not available on Audible in the United States. It's not? Oh, crud. I had to, to, it used to be. It it has a listing. this is what it is. Is. Uh, some people have been able to find it as part of a trilogy on Kindle outside of the United States. Mm. So if you're searching for it on the non-United States Kindle store, Amazon store, you may be able to find it as part of a Mercedes Lackey trilogy that it's part of, which name is escaping me right now, um, but it's only like six bucks. Um, so you're still going to save a little bit of money and and get it in your region. Um, but it, yeah, it's a classic. So it, it's going to be around. So So keep your eyes open for it. It's the Heralds of Valdemar trilogy. Thank you. Book yes. one. That is, that is the one. Uh, right. Can I do a plug real quick? Of course. I have been having a lot of fun on a, on a passion project. Uh, I'm just doing it for fun called Pretend I'm Dumb About Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to TomMerritt.com, to our two T's, uh, and look in the nav for P-I-D-A-S-W, Pretend I'm Dumb About Star Wars, you can find the first four episodes by the time most people hear this. Uh, of me watching Star Wars episodes one through seven every week. I watch a new one as if I have never seen any of the movies or know anything about them. And And how's that going? It has been so much fun. Yeah. Even the prequels. uh, Just like, okay, episode one. I guess I watched that one first, right? That that makes sense. It's called episode one. And then I'm like, who's this guy? Who's that guy? (laughs) Who's this guy? I had the most fun watching episode four, Star Wars A New Hope, the original Star Wars, uh, looking at it as if all I know is Anakin and Obi-Wan and like, oh, we get to see their kids now. That's interesting. Um, Anyway, it's a blast. And if you're into Star Wars and it sounds like it might be interesting, you can find it at TomMerritt.com. Awesome. Very cool. I am excited for that. I'm glad you're having fun with that that little passion project, as you say. <laughs> and like I said, I will, I, will, I will do all seven. So I will do this uh, to episodes five and six the next two weeks. And then when the new movie comes out, I'll do it to that too. Yay. Um, and as a reminder, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons at patreon.com slash laser. We're ramping up stuff for you patrons out there. Patrons. Patron. 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 Activate. Donate. Back. Donate. Sword and laser. Donate! 
<laughs> so thank you to all of you out there who have been kicking in, uh, you know, a few cents, a few bucks. Uh, we really, really appreciate the support. Uh, so you can learn more over at patreon.com slash sword and laser. Please go over there. We've got a book briefing for Mercedes Lackey. You can also support the show by buying books through our links. If you go to swordandlaser.com slash picks, you'll find links to, for instance, the books of the month, books we talk about, books that are recommended by our interviewers. If you click on any of those links, whether you buy that particular book or not, if you buy anything, we get a little cut of that. It helps out the show. Swordandlaser.com slash picks. And you can get in touch with us at feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157-SWORD-6. And don't forget to review us on iTunes. It helps us find new listeners, helps us rise up through the ranks. And we love meeting new people. That's a good way to do it. Thanks, everybody. Bye.